Are you ready? Are you ready to study God's Word today? All right, hopefully you brought a Bible. If you didn't, you can look that up in the app uh, of your choice on your device or just type it into the internet and you'll find John chapter 3 today. John chapter 3. We will have everything on the screen. I, I, I confess that freely. We will have all of it on the screen today. But listen, it is so powerful to get used to handling the Word of God in your own hands and seeing the context and, and getting used to that. It's part of our Bible study process. So John chapter 3. The Barno Research Group did a study in America where they determined that 40% of uh, people believe in uh, the afterlife, believe in God, believe in heaven, and that the way that you get there is by being a good person. That, that being a good person, whatever that means, is what it takes to go to heaven. And so here in this story today that we are going to look at, we meet a man named Nicodemus who believed basically that same thing. That if I try to be a good person, if I keep all the rules and do what society says I need to do, then that will be enough to please God. And so here in John chapter 3, as we get into verse 1, the context here is that Jesus has been traveling around the land of Israel. He's been teaching. He's been drawing a crowd. And the religious leaders have taken notice, and they're wondering, what is up with this Jesus guy? And we are about to meet one of those religious leaders who came to meet Jesus himself under cover of night. And so John chapter 3, verse 1 says... Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now this verse tells us a few things that are really important to know about Nicodemus. First of all, it tells us that he was a, a member of a prestigious and elite religious group called the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were a very select group. There were only 6,000 of them in all of the world, 6,000 men in all of Judaism who had taken a solemn vow to, to follow the Ten Commandments and try to obey the laws of God every single moment of their entire lives. They were the definition of devout. And so sometimes today, Christians have this idea of Pharisees always being the bad guys, but that was not always necessarily the case. That these were, were, were members of a very prestigious and respected religious organization. Verse 1 also tells us that he was part of the ruling council. Now that ruling council was a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was an even more select group. There were only 70 members. And these 70 members had religious authority over every Jew anywhere in the entire world. So Nicodemus was a big guy in the spiritual world. 
What this also tells us that he would be one of the people who ordered his life around the oral traditions that later became known as the Mishnah and the Talmud. Now, the, the oral traditions that became the Mishnah and Talmud were not actually the Bible themselves. They were not actually the Ten Commandments, but they were designed with a whole bunch of extra rules to make sure that you didn't even get close to the commandment. So, so if this is one of the Ten Commandments, they would put all these extra layers of rules in front of it that they required you follow just to make sure that you kept extra holy to make sure you don't even get close to breaking the actual law of God. Let me give you an example. For example, uh, for example keeping the Sabbath as a holy day. The Mishnah had over 24 chapters on just the one issue of how to keep the Sabbath holy. Then the Talmud went on even further with 156 pages on how to keep the Sabbath holy. You weren't allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. And so that would have mean, of course, that building a house on the Sabbath was holy or, or was unholy, was a violation. And so in order to prevent you from building a house on the Sabbath, they also had rules on when and where and how you could spit. You're like, what in the world do those have to do with anything? Well, remember, a whole bunch of extra laws to make sure that you don't break the one. And so it, it, you literally, you heard me right, had to be careful how you spit on the Sabbath. And so the reason was because building a house would be considered a violation so, of course, you could not make mortar in order to, you know, stick the bricks together in the building of a house. And the way that you make mortar for the bricks and the stones is by taking dirt and adding moisture, turning it into mud. So, if you were to spit in the dirt on the Sabbath, then you would be making what could be perceived as mortar, which could conceivably use, be used to build a house. Therefore, if you spit on the Sabbath, you're in trouble. Because you're making mortar, you are working. Now, here, here's the great part, though. We always found, find ways to work around this, right? So a Pharisee could spit on a rock on the Sabbath. Because if you spit on a rock, then no dirt is involved, thus no mortar is created, and the Sabbath has not been violated. So if you're a Pharisee, you better have good aim if you have to spit on the Sabbath. <laughs> now, when you look at this, Nicodemus lived his life by these rules. In other words, he did everything that society says you need to do in order to be a good person. In fact, in just a few verses, we're going to see that Jesus even calls him Israel's teacher. And so Nicodemus is one who actually teaches other people how to be a good person. He's involved in the movement of making the world a better place. And so he is a, a teacher, a spiritual leader, a scholar. So now look at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, 
We know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now, now think about this. This is Nicodemus giving to Jesus a compliment. Because Nicodemus considers himself to be a good person, but he knows that Jesus is really good. He is a great teacher, but he's never seen anyone teach like Jesus. He's seen the miracles that have followed Jesus. And so he knows that Jesus is good. So we've learned three things about Nicodemus. Number one, we've learned that he is active in a do-good organization. Number two, we have learned that he lives to a high moral standard. And number three, we have learned that he has respect for God. Now, wouldn't you say, wouldn't most people say, this would make for a pretty good person? A person who is involved in charity work, a person who is trying to make the world a better place, a person who is part of the right groups, a person who, number two, is trying to live to a high moral standard, is trying to be honest and, and, and pleasing to God and, and be a good person and show some respect to God and spirituality. In fact, if you did those three things, many churches would elect you to the church board. Uh, they would want you in some position of leadership if you met these three, uh, three criteria. And so look at what Jesus says next about whether this kind of good person is good enough. Verse 3, Nicodemus, remember, in verse 2 has said all kinds of nice things about Jesus. He's given Jesus a compliment, and now look at how Jesus responds to this compliment. Verse 3, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is, what are the last two words? Unless he is born again. And so Jesus says, no one is good enough to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. Not even you, no matter how good you think you are, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus gets offended, I think, because look at how he responds to what perhaps he perceives as an insult. In verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, I might be wrong, but I think that Nicodemus is a little bit mad here. I think he is a little bit insulted, and he is taking a sarcastic swing at Jesus. And here's why I say that. Because the Greek word that Jesus uses here for born again is anothen, born anothen. Remember the New Testament was written in what language? In Greek. And so the Greek word that Jesus uses for born anothen, that can be interpreted two ways. A lesser meaning is to be over again, just like you were the first time. Or it can mean the primary meaning from above, from above. So when Jesus says, Nicodemus, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born 
anothen, that Nicodemus can interpret that as either you need to crawl back into your mama's belly and be a baby again, or that you need to be born from above in terms of there's something that you need to experience from God. Which one does he jump on? Why? Why does he jump on the wrong definition? I wonder if it's because he thinks, hey, whoa, 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 just a second, Jesus. I'm already a good person. Don't you know who I am? I mean, I've lived according to my convictions. I've done everything that society says that you should do. And the idea that somehow I'm not okay just the way that I am, that I'm not a, a good person, that, that somehow that, that is offensive, the idea that God somehow needs to fix me, that God somehow needs to change me in order to get ready for the kingdom of God. And so now Jesus goes on to explain to Nicodemus four spiritual realities that he needs to know. And these are four things that everybody needs to know. Number one, that trying to be a good person isn't good enough. You see, the Bible says that there is a problem within our humanity. That our flesh is corrupt. That the desires of our heart, our natural inclinations, will actually draw us away from God rather than to God. And here's how Jesus describes that. Verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. And so Jesus says, in order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born of two things, born of water and the Spirit. Now, what in the world does that mean? There are two possible ways that you could interpret this born of water part. And frankly, the interpretation of this has caused some confusion, I think, among Christians. The first way that many people interpret born of water is that this is talking about baptism. That's the way that I've heard many uh, Christians and many pastors teach this, that Jesus is saying in order to see the kingdom of God, that you have to be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. Baptism is important. But I do not think that that is what Jesus is talking about here. And let me explain to you why. That I think that Jesus actually explains what he means in the very next line. And so let's add a little bit of color here so that we can see that, that perhaps Jesus is using a common thing when you, when you study the Bible, which is called parallelism. That he is making parallel statements that go together. That's what I think. And so when Jesus says, you must be born of water, then he explains what that means. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Your natural flesh birth as a child. Now, I am not going to go into the biology of childbirth, mostly because I don't really understand it. But, uh, but when a child is born, 
a mother's water breaks, right? And so when you were born physically, a baby comes out with a flow of water. And born of the spirit, for the spirit gives birth to spirit. So then as you begin to grow up, you begin to make choices in your life. God begins to reveal himself to you. And your second birth is when you surrender to Jesus who died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can pass from death into spiritual life. So what we need to understand, the Bible says all throughout Scripture, theologically, that when you are born of water, the very first time, when you are born into this world physically, in the flesh, that you are alive in the flesh, but dead in the spirit. That we are spiritually dead. The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit, and the punishment, you shall surely what? You shall surely die if you eat of the fruit. They died spiritually. We are born spiritually dead with a bent towards sinning. That we're alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. Now, when you look at the world and how people live, does that begin to explain something to you? But see, when you accept Jesus, he comes into you. And that shriveled up little raisin of a heart is infused with his spirit and comes alive. And folks, that is what it means to be born again. Ezekiel chapter 36. Oh, it's such a beautiful passage. It says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take out this heart of stone that you have. We live with hearts of stone apart from Jesus. And I will take it out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God wants to do in our lives. And so this, this whole conversation with Jesus is just blowing Nicodemus's mind because it is so different from how he thinks the world works. Look at what Jesus tells him next in verse 8. Jesus says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, this is not based on human logic. This is more than just what the mind can analyze, more than just what the eye can see, that, that we are talking here about supernatural realities. And so two things. First of all, Jesus said, trying to be a good person is not good enough. And now he says that trying to be a smart person isn't good enough. See, all your education is not going to save you. Education is good, but education can never answer the deep down questions that our soul longs for. And so Nicodemus is, is saying, but, 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 this is so different than what the world says. 
exactly. And look at verse 9. In verse 9, he says, how can this be? In other words, I'm this great teacher. I thought I had it all figured out. And is it possible that maybe I've been wrong? Is it possible that maybe the world has it wrong? And so in verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will, I, will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus says, look, you are confused in your thinking. You're thinking like the world thinks rather than from a heavenly perspective, how God thinks. Verse 13, Jesus says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Jesus says, look, there is only one way to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life that you've been looking for. So number one, trying to be a good person isn't good enough. Jesus says trying to be a smart person isn't good enough. Trusting in Jesus is the only answer. And now Jesus goes on to explain exactly what he means. And he uses a story that Nicodemus would be very, very familiar with from the Old Testament. So let's look at the next verse, verse 14. Just as, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. Now, what in the world is that talking about? How did Moses lift up a snake in the desert? I'll explain in just a minute. So the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. See, in the Old Testament, there was this story where snakes, poisonous snakes, came into the Israelites' camp. Some of you, this is your worst nightmare. <laughs> Already you're like, I don't know if I'm going to sleep tonight. That poisonous snakes came into the camp. They start biting all of these Israelites, and people are dying all over the place. And Moses cries out to God. And God says to Moses, here's what I want for you to do. I want you to take a pole. And on that pole, I want there to be the figure of a bronze serpent, a snake made out of bronze. <coughs> and with that, when you put that bronze serpent up on the pole, and you put it up on a hill where everybody can see it, everyone who looks to that symbol will be saved from death. <laughs> You're getting it, right? And Jesus says, in the same way, I must be put up on the cross so that everyone who looks to me will not have to face death, but in me will have eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that good news? That's what it's about. And so in the very next verse, Jesus goes on to speak some of the most famous words in all of the Bible. John 3 Verse 16, 
He says, and so this is what it's all about. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God doesn't want people to be condemned. He wants people to be saved. He did not come to condemn us, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stand condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And so Jesus is saying, spiritual truth number four, that Jesus' forgiveness is the only goodness that could ever be good enough. Listen, it doesn't matter how bad you think you've been. It doesn't matter how good you think you've been. You could never be so bad that Jesus cannot forgive you. And you could never be so good that Jesus does not need to forgive you. And if you think that it's about your goodness you are making the same mistake that Nicodemus made 2,000 years ago. George Whitfield used to tell of a dream in which an angel transported him to the gates of hell. And when he arrived at hell, he cried out to the gatekeeper, do you have any Methodists here? Oh yes, we have plenty of Methodists here. Do you have any Lutherans in hell? Plenty of Lutherans too. What about Catholics? Hell is filled with Catholics. Do you have any Baptists in hell? More than we can count. And with that, Whitfield sadly took his leave of hell. Suddenly, he found himself transported to the gates of heaven where he met St. Peter. St. Peter, do you have any Methodists in heaven? Nope, not a single one. Do you have any Catholics in heaven? I'm sorry, no Catholics this way. What about Presbyterians? No Presbyterians either. What about Baptists? Not one in all the years I've been here. Any Lutherans? We have no one who answers to the name Lutheran. Finally, in desperation, Whitfield cried out, then who do you have in heaven? And the answer came back, Christians, only Christians. Listen, that's the answer, folks. That's the answer. You see, there is only one question that matters, and it's this. Is your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, I could ask you, are you a believer? And if you say, well, I'm part of the Wesleyan Church, well, that's nice, but that's not what I asked you. Uh, is your life in, in Christ Jesus? Well, I was baptized by Pastor Jones in 1965. That's not what I asked you. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, I was born a Catholic and I'm going to die a Catholic. That's nice, but that's not what I asked you. If I ask, are you a Christian? And you say, well, I, I, I think so. That's not the answer. The answer is, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. For on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Would you sing that out? On Christ the solid rock I stand. 
All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And on that day 2,000 years ago, Nicodemus did not give his life to Jesus. That's the bad news. But the good news is, later, after Christ was resurrected, guess who shows up at the tomb as a worshiper of Jesus? Nicodemus. And in the same way, maybe the fact is, like Nicodemus, you have heard the truth, but you have avoided Jesus. And maybe today is the day, like Nicodemus, where you finally come to the point of surrender. Listen, I don't know if you know this, but if you have not been around here for the last few months, God is doing something amazing. We have had lives changed. We've had miracles and healings. And Nathan is going to come out right now, our outreach pastor, and just spend a few minutes uh, with us and share just a few of the stories just in the last week or so of what God has been doing, just so that you can see that this stuff is real. Uh, just what's one of the stories from the last week or so? Well, uh, last, not this week, but the week before on a Tuesday, uh, a person just showed up at the church and said, I need prayer. Went down and met a person, and, I, and uh, the person, I'm going to say her name was Ann, just because she's new. But Ann said, hey, it's me, Ann, and uh, I need prayer. And I go, Ann? Wait a minute, I've heard about you, Ann. Aren't you the person that six months ago was at the leadership seminar uh, and said, there's too much G-O-D stuff for me here. I don't know what's wrong with Christians. I'm an atheist. This is offensive. This makes me weak. I want nothing to do with God. Six months ago. Six months ago. And on the Tuesday before last, she was here saying, I need prayer. Now, there was a little more context even. Like, I, was this somebody who was, like, even teasing Christians about what they believe? A little bit. And she had a friend, Dorothy, at uh, her workplace. And uh, Dorothy say, hey, I'm going to program at church. And she'd say, say a little prayer for me. <laughs> but, you know, after a while, she said, why am I having this reaction to God? I don't like black licorice. Doesn't make me upset. Mm. What's the problem? Mm. And with an intellectual honesty and an awareness that there was something in the heart, she began to explore. So I actually got to come in right on the very tail end of everything Knowing, uh, knowing that God had been working for six months on this hardcore atheist, mm. and, got, and I'd heard a few things, got to pray with her. She had had a spiritual attack in the last week as she was getting close to God, something that she didn't believe was possible in her atheist mm. mindset, secular mindset. Pat and I prayed over her. It lifted. She gave her heart fully to Christ, and she is a transformed human being. And she's here today. Here today. And uh, alpha or beta word, I mean, we... Well, alpha, beta word, I happened to be here as it was dismissing uh, this Tuesday, and it was like a sea of people coming down that hallway, and every third one, I'm like, and you're a new Christian, and you're a new Christian, and you're just about a new Christian. <laughs> and it was just like, wow, I just wanted to give high fives, and, and uh, it was like a dozen, 15 people uh, that I knew of. You know, and the ones I didn't know. It was just amazing. And even... So that, that Tuesday before last was when, when uh, Anne, the atheist, came to Christ fully. And then the very next day, another guy was all by himself. He had watched the shack. He had 
had someone share the gospel with him, but he was resistant to it. Again, not a believer. But he reached out to God because he had had some symptoms in the last while that had been driving him crazy. A real horrible images if he closed his eyes of gore and, and atrocity and stuff like that. Didn't make any sense to him. He would had a stitch in his side that, was, that had been there for 15 years that was growing increasingly stronger. This is like 10 days ago, guys. He got down on his knees and prayed to God and invited Christ in, resisted Satan and rebuked him. The stitch in his side for 15 years that had been there that the doctors had been working on instantly went away, and he doesn't know how to describe it, but a blackness came out of him that was totally supernatural, and he's here today. <laughs> Worship for Jesus Christ. <laughs> I know we can't keep going forever, but like there's a prayer group that's like actively engaged in praying for people. And I think you even told me something this week about uh, some of the progress that's been made in people who have been prayed for. And well, it's just ridiculous. Uh, somebody came in my office and was new to the church, just had a problem talking to them, listening. And after a while, I go, Oh, wait a minute. Who do you work with? What's your name? Huh? Oh. Our prayer group's been praying for you for six months. And that guy went from agnostic to, like, believer in one week later. Mm. You know, because it was the power of prayer. We've had, uh, we've, we mm. had a, a lady that went with us on our Haiti trip, and we looked at the application. The application said, not Christian. <laughs> really? And I, we prayed about it as a leadership team. We said, you know what? We think God's going to lead this lady to Christ in Haiti because it's such a beautiful, impactful, mm. devastating experience to be there. God one-upped it. We had a prayer study beforehand, and she was dutifully doing the prayer study because I told her that was a requirement. And God went and answered one of her prayers with a supernatural dream at night that was true. Mm. She didn't think that was possible, and neither did I. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's That's unbelievable, good. and we could keep on going. Yeah, yeah. We could keep on going. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. People ask why I believe all this stuff. I, I've I taught a few classes on doubt recently and, and uh, actually did a, a master's uh, project on the issue of doubt. I, I relate to it greatly because I am a natural doubter. I'm a natural skeptic. And yet with all of my study of scripture, with all of my study of history, with all of my study of theology and philosophy and the belief systems of the world, let me just say I have come to a conclusion that Christianity is trustworthy and the Bible is amazing, but that is not just the reason that I believe. The greatest evidence to me that all of this is real is the power of Jesus that transforms lives. And so we're going to take communion today to celebrate the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. But there are some of you who are here today who are not yet ready because you've never crossed that line of faith. You've never done what Jesus said we need to do to 
be born again, to be born from above. And the Bible says the way that we do that is by confessing our sin, confessing that we're not good enough, confessing that we are not nearly as good as we think we are. But believing that Jesus died on the cross so that we can be forgiven. And when you receive that gift of forgiveness, when you say, Jesus, come in and take control, Spirit of God, come in and make me alive, Jesus' love changes everything. And for some, when they happen, just as you heard in these stories, there's like this instantaneous something that washes over. For others, maybe it, it doesn't come accompanied with an immediate feeling of emotion. But in time, God is going to honor your commitment. And just as we heard, listen, you think you had trouble before you give your life to Jesus? Then the devil had you and he didn't care. But when you give your life to Christ, he's going to start coming after you. The devil's going to try to mess you up and pull you away from God's love. But that's why we have the body of Christ, the church together. You don't have to do it on your own. We together, the family of God, are going after what he has for us. And so as we prepare to pray, if you need to make that decision, today, this communion, the bread which represents his body broken for us on the cross, the cup which represents his blood that was shed to wash away our sins and make us clean. He took our punishment, death, so that we can have new life. And so right now, if everybody, if we would just close our eyes, and maybe today is your day of salvation. And so you just say that right now in your heart. Say, Father, I confess that I've sinned, I've fallen short of your glory. I'm not nearly as good as I have pretended to be. And I receive your forgiveness. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me. And now may your spirit come in and fill me from the inside out. That you would take out, as Ezekiel says, my heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, alive in your spirit. And so now, as the family of God, for those who are brand new Christians right now, and for those who have followed Christ for decades, we pray your blessing upon these elements. In Jesus' name, amen. Hold on to that as you receive it. And in just a few minutes, we're going to take the bread and the cup together.